With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, you are Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. We're happy to have Professor Bob Allison, Robert Allison in, Professor at Department of History, Suffolk University. And uh, that's a Boston treasure, Suffolk, Suffolk University. Thank you. And you are part of the, you're on the board of trustees for the USS Constitution Museum. Yes. Recently, they took a spin around the harbor and shot their cannons off. Yes, and they'll be doing it again this week. This is every year the men and women who are petty officers in the Navy who are being promoted to chief petty officer, which is the highest non-commissioned rank in the Navy, spend a week aboard Constitution. They actually sleep aboard and then do all kinds of drills. They climb up into the rigging, and then on Friday of the week, they take a cruise through the, in, into the harbor. They go up to Castle Island and fire a salute. So they did it last week around 9.45, 10 o'clock. They're at Castle Island. They'll be there again this Friday if you want to go see the salute. It's really a, it's a great tradition that they've started within the last 10 years, having the petty officers come aboard for a week. Do the harbor ferries go to Castle Oh, you don't need a you ferry to get can, to Castle you, Island. You, you can, can walk drive, to Castle Island. You can walk Island. to Castle it's, Island. Okay. You can take the number nine right. bus to Castle Island. I w- don't know what I was thinking, of course, Castle Island. Number nine bus. Where's the number nine go from where to where? Copley. Copley, Copley? number 10, yeah, yeah, or the number 11, which goes from downtown crossing, or the number 7 that goes from downtown crossing. Yeah, and oh. then it's about it's about a half a mile walk from where the bus stops. Oh, man, that, that's something to think about. Also, Professor Allison is the leader of a group called Rev250. They coordinate historic sites in an effort to commemorate the 250th anniversaries of events leading up to the American Revolution. Right. And you are working on getting... Funding, correct? Well, funding, uh, state commission, state recognition. And next year, of course, we have one of the big anniversaries, the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre, which is the precipitating event. 1770 to um, 2020, it's 250 years. That's March the 5th of 2020. And we have a couple of things we're doing with Rev 250. We just completed a really great teacher workshop introducing teachers to the underrepresented voices of the revolution. So African-Americans, women, Native Americans, they went to all kinds of cool places like the um, Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford, which is the only New England slave quarters still extant. The royal family from, I think they're from Antigua, built this as their summer estate. And they went to the Museum of Fine Arts. Jane Kamensky, who's one of the leading authorities on John Singleton Copley, gave them a tour of the Copley wing of the 
MFA, and the Mass Historical Society showed off all of some of their treasures. So it was really an exciting week for teachers really being immersed in the stories of the revolution. And we also had a group of women who did a spinning bee in Lexington. They set up their spinning wheels and in 1769 as a protest against the British taxes and the British requirement that Americans only buy cloth from Britain. Women here in Massachusetts spun cloth. They spun yarn. And so these women who have their own spinning wheels were spinning out in the common, recreating these spinning bees. Are there any documented garments made during that time by people spinning? That are still around, you mean? Yeah. Uh, undoubtedly. I, I, they, usually garments don't last that long. But yeah. I would be surprised if there weren't somewhere in someone's attic. Um, but again, you've asked me a question. I don't know the answer. Already? Yeah, already. We're, we're only into only, five minutes. Yeah, five minutes. Yeah, I haven't gotten to the first break. You know? Okay. And related related to um, the Boston Massacre, they were talking about changing the name of Fanwell Hall, and I heard the name Crispus Attucks yes. floated. And any uh, updates on that? I haven't heard anything. I don't think it is going to happen. Uh, you know, the, the Park Service, with the city owns Faneuil Hall. The Park Service runs it. They're putting in a commemoration of the slave trade there. Uh, but changing the name, I think, is a bit much. And Crispus Attucks you know, was one of the five victims of the Boston Massacre. We know very little about him other than that. He was from Framingham. His mother was a, or his father was a nipmuc. His mother was African American, or vice versa. And he had been, he would run away from slavery, and he was a sailor. He went by a number of different names. One of the Michael Johnson is actually the name on his death certificate. And he was uh, leading the mob that night. I was wondering if he was just a wrong place at the wrong time, no, he, uh, or if the, he was involved. One of the witnesses remembered Attucks leading a group of sailors up uh, Corn Hill, holding two big clubs, and he handed one to this guy and said, let's go get him. And then he pushes his way to the front of the crowd. He's trying to grab Private Montgomery's gun away from Montgomery. Crispuses? Crispuses. Yeah. And uh, someone throws a block of wood through the air, hits Montgomery in the head, and Montgomery's, the crowd has been yelling, fire, why don't you fire? You don't dare fire. And when Montgomery staggers after he's hit, he gets up and he says, God damn you, I will fire. And he does and shoots addicts. And the um, private standing next to Kilroy, the private standing next to Montgomery, also fires his gun. And that kills um, Patrick Gray, who's a rope worker. And then um, three other people are mortally wounded. And then about half a dozen are very seriously wounded. That's it. So he's shot. And he was he the first it. one shot? He was the first one shot. And this becomes a big big issue, of course, later on. Um, in the 1850s, There's a uh, the Supreme Court issues a ruling in the case of Dred Scott saying that at the time the Constitution was written, a black man had no rights, which a white man was bound to respect. And uh, William Cooper Nell was a Boston historian, African-American, and he says, well, wait a minute. Back in 1770, these British soldiers are put on trial for their lives for killing a black guy in the street. And so that indicates that there was a and, – and Nell writes a book called The Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, which begins with Crispus Attucks at the Boston Massacre. Now, we don't really know anything more about Attucks other than that he was there and he was killed. There is a – teapot that surfaced in 1857-1858 when the African-American community in Boston commemorated Crispus Attucks Day in the wake of the Dred Scott decision, and they brought out this teapot that they said belonged to Crispus Attucks. It may very well have, and of course, 
T carries a certain resonance then with the revolution, although the massacre was three years before Parliament passed the Tea Act, which required you know the all tea sold in North America. That's a story for another day. Um, so this teapot that might have belonged to Crispus Attucks, we don't really know much more about him other than that. There have been a number of children's books written. There's a biography of him really trying to pull out what evidence there is. There's a, apparently a building in Framingham that has some connection with Crispus Attucks because we know that's where he was from. And in fact, in John Adams's argument to the jury, he talks about a car from Ireland. Patrick Carr was one of the other victims or an Attucks from Framingham. Huh. These outsiders who come and give uh, Bostonians a bad reputation. And was at that massacre, how many of the people were there politically and how many people were just raising, raising rabble, rabble we rousers? We really don't know. We don't even know how many people were there. Uh, the crowd estimates fluctuate pretty wildly. I suspect, as with any other big event like this, very few were there for some political reason. There was an attack first on the British barracks. Uh, you know, some people turn out because they want to fight. One of the other witnesses is uh, an enslaved man named Andrew. He's actually enslaved to a guy named Oliver Wendell. And Oliver Wendell's grandson is Oliver Wendell Holmes, not born at this time. But Andrew said he was standing out. He heard all this commotion. And he goes out into the yard, and he says to someone passing by, is there a fire? Because the fire bells are ringing. He says, no, it's something even better than a fire. It's a fight. So Andrew went to see this fight and be part of this Yeah, fight. I was wondering if maybe Alex was a sailor and just a group of sailors wanted to have a fight. A lot of sailors are fighting. In fact, the massacre starts with a fight at a rope walk when a British soldier walking past and he gets into a fight with rope workers who insult him. And, they, and, and, and so you have this escalating violence over the weekend. So sailors and rope workers, soldiers and rope workers, and these are tough folks, are fighting all weekend. And on Monday night, this um, chaos breaks out that we call, that then the town frames as this political action. We don't know if it was a political action or not. We're going to talk about civil rights leaders, local civil rights leaders. And there's a connection between the Boston Massacre and Malcolm X. Also, there's a connection between the anniversary, of course, the anniversary of the first slave slaves on the North American Soil, right, and about 400 well, in, in years what ago. Be, in what becomes North America. Oh, yeah. And what becomes British North America. Yeah. There had been enslaved people who came with the Spanish in the 1500s. And if a guy named Estevez, who travels with DeSoto's expedition in the 1580s, I think, through from Florida essentially to Texas, and other enslaved people. And the story of slavery really begins much earlier. There's been focus on it now because 1619 is when um, 19 people came, arrived on a Dutch ship into Jamestown. And it was ambiguous what their status was at the time. Some became, well, you know, servitude was a common thing. And these folks who 19 people from Africa sold by the Dutch. Some of them became servants for life. Some of them might have ultimately become free. But this, in some ways, is the beginning of African slavery and what becomes British North America. So there's been some focus on that. The fact that there's been this... Uh, so 
What's the connection between the Boston Massacre and Malcolm X? Okay, so in the 1880s, the Boston's black community really sees Crispus Attucks as someone they should commemorate showing that they've been here a long time, that the black community in Boston had been here for a long time. In fact, the first slave ship reached Boston in 1636, the ship called the Desire, and bringing Af people from Africa. This wasn't a big market for enslaved people, but uh, there were Africans who become enslaved. And in Boston, by the end of the century, 17th century, they're house servants mainly. Some are working on farms, and uh, the Vassal House out in uh, Medford has enslaved people come up from Antigua. So that would be too early for a, fa a Faneuil who was known, a known slave trader, Peter, right? Well, yeah, this is before Peter Faneuil. Okay. I think one thing we want, we all often try to do, and I don't know why we do, well, it's probably human nature, is we try to find out who is responsible and who to blame. Yeah. So we know it wasn't you or me. So okay. who is doing this? And just about everyone was. So we have in Boston an economy that is tied in with the sugar economy of the West Indies, but then we also have in 1700 Samuel Sewell writing um, The Selling of Joseph, which is one of the first anti-slavery papers written in what becomes the United States. And he sees this as a sin, the enslavement of people. You know, in 1642, Massachusetts drafted its, what it calls its Body of Liberties. These are the first code of laws here, and it does allow for enslavement because you didn't have the institution of slavery, lifetime, lifetime servitude in England that's inheritable by children, so they have to create it here. So Massachusetts creates slavery before any other place that becomes an American state. Now, Virginia, as I said, it's ambiguous what the status of people of color is. There are lots of white indentured servants, and then there are Native American indentured servants or slaves, and then there are African indentured servants or slaves. They don't codify it until somewhat later. Massachusetts does codify it quite early. Now, getting back to the connection with the massacre, you have this event in which Crispus Attucks is killed, and the Boston's black community in the, six, in the 1850s during the Civil War wants to commemorate this. And in the 1880s, they succeed in having a monument built to the victims of the massacre on Boston Common. And it's quite controversial because these guys were part of an urban mob. In the 1880s, there are lots of urban mobs, and there's a thinking among the leaders of the community, do we really want to have a monument commemorating this urban mob? In fact, the Massachusetts Historical Society comes out very strongly against putting up the monument. Boston's black community is working with other members of the elite, uh, notably Governor, the Gov Governor Ames and the um, Bostonian Society, which has bought the old state house and now is trying to create it as a museum. And they know that Revere's engraving, the most famous image of the, ma of the revolution, has their, ha their building in it. So they want to keep this and enshrine the memory of the massacre. So working with the black community, they get this monument on the common, and the first name on it is Crispus Attucks. Now, fast forward about 60 years, and you have this teenager, Malcolm Little, whose aunt, Ella Collins, had knew he was falling into trouble in the Midwest, so brings him here, and he's walking around this city, and on Boston Common, he sees this monument, and there's a name of a black guy on it. It says he's something he had never seen before, a commemoration of a person of color here on this monument on Boston Common. It's something really striking to Malcolm X, which he writes about in his autobiography. 
So can you now go in, now that we're at Malcolm X, we'll focus on Malcolm. Yeah. So as I said, has a kind of a troubled background. Father is lynched uh, in, in Kansas and comes here as a teenager and has kind of a, his sister lives in Roxbury on the hill in Roxbury, um, Ella Collins. In fact, her son, Rodnell Collins, is now trying to open up the house as a museum. Um, it must be her grandson because his, his aunt was, his, his, he's Malcolm X's nephew. So Ella was Malcolm's sister. And so he comes here and gets into trouble. He's, um, you know, he does shine shoes at the Savoy Ballroom on uh, Huntington Avenue, and then he gets into petty theft and housebreaking and is jailed, actually, at the Charlestown House of Correction of the Concord Penitentiary. And it's there that he's first introduced to the um, teachings of Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad is really the founder of um, the Nation of Islam and with this theory about how um, white people are the children of the devil, and this is the lost nation of Islam, the lost and found nation of Islam. And so Malcolm X, very smart, very articulate, um, opens the first nation of Islam temple in Boston, and then is brought to New York because he's such an effective communicator and really is responsible in the 1950s and early 60s for um, kind of an intellectual polish given to the idea of um, what are then were called black Muslims. What and were some of the key tenets of that belief system? Well, it is based on Islam, although Malcolm comes to see that it's not really the same as Islam as it's practiced in the rest of the world. It does have this idea about white people as the children of the devil created by this wicked scientist and the black Muslims will recreate themselves, but it's essential that they uh, rely on one another, that they don't do drugs, they don't drink, they don't do these other things that they say are tools of white people to keep us in slavery. They want to keep the black man powerful. That black people powerful, and able. exactly, able. And so hard work, that's another part of this. Hard work, um, self-discipline. Self-reliance. Self-reliance and working with this community. So things that are very much, you can see a similarity with Puritanism in this and things that are really salutary for any community thinking we should work together and we should not drink and not do drugs and uh, work hard and be faithful and so on things that you know we would celebrate uh, but then it also has this very strong do have nothing to do with the white man because he's going to hurt you and so you have this is really the belief system and Malcolm is a very articulate um, promoter of this idea and then uh, he um, does he's kind of silenced because he says at the time of uh, President Kennedy's assassination he says it's a case of the chickens are coming home to roost that is violent country you're going to have these kinds of episodes and that was too much so the uh, Elijah Muhammad silences Malcolm and then during his hiatus from being a leader in the nation he does make a pilgrimage to Mecca and what he sees when he's walking around the Kaaba are Muslims of all colors thinks, well, this is Islam in the wider world, doesn't have this racial categorization. And so he comes back thinking that, well, maybe we should. Did his activities forward civil rights or 
hinder them? That's hard to tell. Hard to say. I and mean, he um, takes a different approach. Unlike uh, you know Martin Luther King, whom we also should talk about, has a different trajectory. He also has a Boston connection. He comes here to study at Boston University under Howard Thurman, one of the great theologians of the 20th century. And this is where he meets his wife, Coretta Scott, who had come here from Alabama to study at the New England Conservatory. And King um, takes the nonviolent approach, which he really learns about at Boston, he knew, at Boston University. Thurman um, knows people who knew Mahatma Gandhi. Uh-huh. And have that connection with this idea of satyagraha. And Malcolm X says, well, violence might be necessary to uh, counter violence. King says that you know, we discredit ourselves once we use violence. And also, as a pragmatic thing, we don't have the means. But no, th- that this is a different kind of idea. But Malcolm X was conscious of the fact that he presented, a, he was useful to King in that King's trying to appeal, trying to keep the civil rights movement focused on nonviolence, but if um, the establishment doesn't accept what King is proposing, yeah. then they know there's this other alternative. Sort of good cop, bad cop. Exa- exactly, exactly. And Malcolm X knew this. King knew this. And King was always conscious of this, that you needed to have alternatives. You needed to have different voices heard. And that the Nation of Islam presented something, and that if— um, something that is appealing, and, and it, it, it is in many ways. So King does have, um, King preaches at the 12th Baptist Church, which is maybe one of the most historic churches in Boston. Uh, the church itself was founded in the 1850s by people who were fugitives from slavery, who had come to Boston, and other Baptist churches, which they were members, were a little wary now of having fugitives in their churches. So the Fugitives start the 12th Baptist in the 1850s. It was on Phillips Street, and then they moved to the South End and to Roxbury in the 20th century. So you think about it. This was a church started by fugitives from slavery, and Martin Luther King preaches in their pulpit. And so King is um, here in this community for um, when he's doing his graduate work. Now, Boston had a relatively small black community historically, but a very important one. And I don't know, it looks like you have another question or another tangent you want us to go off on. Okay, so I'm just thinking about the importance of the black church here. And you do have African Americans who are in their own churches, but um, Tremont Street, the Tremont Temple was actually started when some of the white churches, and, and we see this over the course of our history, at times there is more acceptance of people of different colors, and at others, that is, racism rises and falls. And there was a time in the early 19th century when the white churches no longer wanted to allow African Americans to sit on the main floor. And this is this moment when the Tremont Temple is formed, and also in 1806 when the um, Baptist Church on uh, Joy Street is opened, the African Meeting House, which is now the Museum of African American History a church built in 1806, and it was both a church and a meeting house for the black community in Boston. And Frederick Douglass spoke at the pulpit of the meeting house, and William Lloyd Garrison organizes the New England Anti-Slavery Society there. So we have a long history of a relatively small community, but having a huge impact. 
you know, Garrison speaking at the first meeting of what becomes the New England Anti-Slavery Society said that our numbers may be small, but the voices raised in this meeting will shake the nation, which they do. Can you talk about Melania Cass? Melania Cass was the first lady of Roxbury, uh, born in the 1890s in Virginia, I believe, and comes to Boston, studies here, and lives the rest of her life in Boston, and becomes... I guess she was just a member of the community. Today, I guess we would call her a community organizer. She, when the 19th Amendment is passed, giving women the right to vote, she is there enrolling women to vote and is very much involved in this community. And then in the 1940s, she and the Snowdens start Freedom House, which is an African-American gathering place in Roxbury, a community center in Roxbury, really focused on advancing people, the, the role of people of color in this community. So Melnia Cass, great woman, and the, uh, ironically, the road name for her, Melnia Cass Boulevard, was created to be the roadway between Route 93 and Route 95, when in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a plan to extend the Southwest Corridor, Route 95, through Boston. It was gonna cut through Cambridge, and Roxbury and Jamaica Plain, and the various communities that were going to be affected by this. And of course, in Roxbury, the South End, these are communities of color. See, this is going to have a huge impact on this neighborhood, and it's really not made for us. It's made for to speed people through the neighborhood. And so there it is, people like um, Mel King and Chuck Turner and others who mobilize against this highway. And at first, they think they're just going to mitigate the damage but they actually wind up stopping it. Wow. And yeah, That's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. It's extraordinary. Carolyn Crockett, who teaches at MIT, has written a great book about this called People Before Highways. Wow. Because that was the idea. And, and Governor Sargent in 1970, um, that was in 1969, January of 1969, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of this, uh, meets a rally of people against the highway on Boston Common, and he says we'll have no more highway construction in the city of Boston. Wow. And the, if you've been on the orange line out to Jamaica Plain, the um, concrete trough you're in was built to be part of this highway. You mean the roadbed, the railroad the ro bed? The railroad bed. And really? Col Columbus Ave. That's why it so was So that would have been and, where it went. Yeah, and Melnia Cass, that whole strip was cleared to allow for the, that would be the interchange between Route 95 and Route wow. 93. So it's a phenomenal story about this community organizing and also finding allies in other communities. So Cambridge was very much against this. And the Museum of Fine Arts, they were really very important in stopping this because they knew this is going to have a huge impact on this museum because this uh, road is going to pass right by right. us. Yeah. So it, and, and Carolyn's done a great job telling this story with the voices of these various communities who come together in opposition to it and put pressure on the governor. And Governor Sargent had been a builder of highways before he became governor. So it's one of the most unlikely allies you're going to find, but he sees the long-term impact of this is going to really devastate this community as highway construction has devastated other communities. You see that haven't really recovered from having a road built through them. For example? Well, think about uh, New York, where you've had highways built everywhere and they divide communities. Or even think about the way the expressway through the yeah. city of Boston. That's really something they're looking at here, how this road through the city of Boston had cut the north end off from the rest of the city and cut Chinatown off from the rest of the city. And, in fact, 
we, we think about the destruction of the West End during uh, urban renewal, but actually more people lost their homes because of the building of the highway, Route 93, than did through the destruct demolition of the West End. And so you have highways that separate. You know, Byron Rushing, the uh, st- former state rep from uh, the South End, says he always know. You, he said you can always tell where the black community was by looking at where the highway is. And in Newton, route um, the uh, Mass Turnpike goes through what had been the black community. Wow, and of course. Other places, yeah. And not not in my backyard. Yeah, it's, I don't want a highway in my backyard. If you have little, clout, yeah, people with very little power. And that's another thing that had happened in Boston in the 1950s with the change in the structure of city government, eliminating the district city councilors and replacing them with at-large city councilors, happens at the same time that the black community is really growing in Boston. And you probably would have seen African Americans on the city council in the 1950s had the city charter not been changed to eliminate district councilors and replace them with everyone was elected citywide. Let's take a break and then talk about a W.E.B. Dubois, civil rights, Du Bois, civil rights activist and NAACP founder on WBZ. We heard you on the radio. That's right. Now, say my name. All night till day with Bradley J. Bradley J. J. Talking. WBZ News Radio 1030. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is a Bradley J. on BZ Tentley. Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ with Robert, Professor Robert Allison, Suffolk University, and much more. Talking loosely about civil rights leaders, but as we as we will, we we go where we want. Yeah. And then we're coming back down to W.E.B. Du Bois, civil rights activist. Yes. Someone who, whom I know nothing of. Really? Okay. Du Bois lived a long life. He was born in 1868 in Great Barrington. Uh, African-American mother, a white father, whom he didn't really know very well, and goes to um, Fisk University. As, as he grew up in this white community in western Massachusetts, extraordinarily bright, and wants to learn what it's really like to be black in America, so he goes to Fisk University in Tennessee, an historically black school. And from there, he goes to Harvard, and he also studies in Berlin, in Germany. And he earns a PhD from Harvard in the 1890s, it must have been, and then he gets a teaching position in Atlanta, at Atlanta University. Wow. And um, sociologist, historian, um, prolific writer, and at first is uh, an advocate of the um, Booker T. Washington idea about education and the African Americans in the South should learn um, farming, better farming techniques, and so on. And you know, Washington 
Booker T. Washington is building this university, Tuskegee, using both white philanthropy as well as the support of the Alabama legislature. So he treads very carefully on issues of social equality and political power. And Du Bois comes to see the shortcomings of this and in 1903 writes a powerful book called The Souls of Black Folk in which he says that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And he sees the color line as stretching around the world. And wonderful writer, terrific writer. Um, and so Du Bois writes this very powerful book which also attacks Washington and comes to start, well, what becomes the Niagara Movement. They were going to meet at Niagara Falls in Canada, and the thinking is that Booker T. Washington actually does wield a great deal of power in the United States, and so the black African Americans who are not enamored of Washington's entire philosophy are going to meet in Canada to start this counter-movement, which will also push for political equality and political rights. And Another figure we should talk about in Boston while we're talking about uh, civil rights activists is Monroe Trotter, William Monroe Trotter, who also goes to Harvard. And Trotter lives in the South, and his father had, ser had been in the Massachusetts 55th Regiment during the Civil War. And Trotter becomes a journalist and also a political activist. He starts a newspaper called The Guardian, and Trotter was a prickly character. Um, Kerry Greenwich, who teaches at Tufts, is just finishing a book about Trotter that's coming out in October. Fascinating character. And Trotter knows that Washington is coming to speak at the Columbus Avenue African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, which is a church building that still is there. And so Trotter goes to disrupt the meet, uh, Washington speech. And Washington had said, we shouldn't push for political equality because that's just going to cause problems in the South. And Trotter asks at this meeting, one of the questions he wants to ask Washington is, don't you know the ballot is the only way a free people can protect themselves? And Washington has Trotter arrested for provoking a riot. And while Trotter is at the Charles Street Jail, he reads Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, which had just come out. He says, well, here's someone also talking about the problem of Washington as well as the problem of the 20th century. And so Trotter becomes involved with the Niagara Movement. And then after, uh, Trotter doesn't stay involved with it very long because it's difficult for him to remain involved with anyone else. But after a series of race riots, in fact, which are at this period, are whites attacking blacks. And there's a vicious riot in Springfield, Illinois in 1908-1909. And this is troubling because Springfield, of course, birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, the centennial of Lincoln's birth, and you have mobs of whites burning down a black neighborhood, and the Niagara movement now coalesces with whites who are really troubled at this, including whites in Boston, the children of abolitionists, and they create what becomes the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. You, know, you can see it coming out of Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, Trotter's critique of Washington, and then their real trouble over these race riots in which African-Americans are being victimized by mobs of angry whites. And the NAACP pushes for um, legal protection of African-Americans who are wrongfully accused of crimes, and also protection against lynching. And lynching really was a national scourge at this time, and usually a way to prevent blacks from 
voting from trying to exercise their political rights or trying to achieve their political rights. So the NAACP is formed in 1909 in the wake of this. And in Boston, it was really led mainly by whites. In other parts of the country, African-Americans do take um, more important roles in it. And so you see this emanating from Boston, which does have this tradition of opposition to slavery. It's something that Boston really was justifiably proud of, opposition to slavery, the anti-slavery movement really was based here, and then also the extension of civil rights to African Americans. Another person we won't have time to talk about is David Walker, who wrote one of the real great critiques of slavery in 1830, and in 1866, his son was elected to the Massachusetts legislature from a district in Boston that was actually mainly white. So you do have some African Americans exercising some political power in Boston, or at least being elected to office. So the experience for someone like Trotter, educated African American in Boston, was much different from the experience of someone like Washington, who grew up in in slavery in Virginia. So we have a couple of minutes to go. Circle back to Muriel Snowden. We just touched upon her a little bit. So that's probably two, three minutes well spent. Yeah, Muriel Snowden and her husband Otto Snowden from Roxbury. Again, part of the African-American elite in Boston and also see a connection with um, African-Americans who aren't part of the elite. And Freedom House is really an organization for African-Americans, whether they are in the elite or not. And the Snowdens were people who would have been leaders in any community in which they happened to live or happened to be born. And their papers now, by the way, are at Northeastern University for anyone interested, and as well as the papers of Freedom House, which is an advocacy center um, in Roxbury. And so the Snowdens really see the importance of education as well as the importance of political activity and being engaged in this community and not simply going to work, um, but being an active voice here. You're currently writing your book on the Constitution. USS Constitution. Yeah. yeah. And um, keep us updated on that. And you, ha- I went to see you give a talk yes. on that topic. Are you going to give that, to- that talk again? I mean, you did put it together. You might as well do it again somewhere. That's right. Maybe I'll do it right now. Uh, no. Yeah, you you want? I mean, you want to? No, no. I don't okay, know. I, I, I'm, you can. I'm joking. We did I it. Know. We did it once. We did it once. Extreme yes. detail. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, great. Yeah, excruciating detail. No, it, it you was, felt like you were there. Yeah, the the talk you give is about twenty minutes, and yeah. I I know that folks would love it. I was okay. I was privileged to be there. Yeah. So I hope you do it again, and I hope you let us know. And there's more to it. Yes, I definitely will. So that folks can go enjoy it. Yeah. And okay. Great. And. When do you suppose that's going to be done? And like next year? I hope next year. Yeah, yeah. You already you know all the stuff. I, do, I just have to write it down. It's just a matter of typing it out. Yeah, yeah. My son's pointed out that it actually is taking me longer to write the book than it took the ship to sail around the world. All right. Thank you very, very much for coming in. My pleasure. As Thank always, you, Bradley. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.